And now for something completely different. Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. And welcome to the show this morning. You know, you know the real estate market's getting really kind of overheated when sister wives Janelle Brown moves to Cody Pass. Uh, over the weekend, of course, they had bought property down in Flagstaff, you know, a couple of years ago, and they were supposed to build this big house. This is sister wives, of course. This is Cody Brown and his four wives. And they're supposed to move down uh, to this big property build a, and build a house. Well, they never have. And uh, over the weekend, she was in a rental, and the rental was sold out by the owner. So she needed a place to live, so she moved down. And, of course, as she is now down in there, <laughs> living on Flagstaff in her RV. So this, this is really kind of the state of the real estate market across the country. We've talked about this before, is that home prices have now reached the point. Survey out this morning talking about homeowners wanting to buy now don't want to buy because prices are too high. Sellers want to sell because prices are so high. So this is one of those things we've talked about. For a long time, there's been this discussion about, well, there's a huge inventory shortage of houses. No, there's never an inventory shortage of houses. It's always a function of supply and demand. What happens with real estate is what happens on the fringes of those few people willing to buy and sell a house on any given month. And when prices reach a certain level where sellers say, you know what? This is the most I'm ever gonna get out of this house. I'm gonna sell. Supply becomes a problem very quickly. And of course, at the same time, when prices are that high, buyers become much more reluctant to buy and that inventory shortage reverses and you get a decline in home prices. So again, we're starting to see evidence of that. And just, you know, kind of just interestingly, you know, Janelle Brown's talking about the reason she moved to the, to the property and rented this RV was because she couldn't, you know, housing prices are just ridiculous. They're so high right now, especially in Arizona and other states like that. Housing prices just really out of control because of ultra low interest rates, because of stimulus checks, because of all these things led to a big rush to buy homes last year uh, amidst the pandemic. So there we go. You know what else went up in price a whole lot last year? RVs. Massive uh-huh. increase in people buying RVs because they didn't want to fly. They didn't want to you know, travel. So they, uh, they wanted to travel, but they didn't want to fly on crowded planes. So they bought RVs. So RV prices <laughs> have been shooting up as well. So that's kind of really just a, you know, a quick, interesting little you know, biopsy of what's happening in the economy and the markets today. It's just you know, We have these bifurcations between what would normally be the case of things such as used car prices. Right now, over the weekend, there was a gentleman talking about that a new use, a new used car, a used car actually costs more than when it was new in some cases. So, again, this is what we talked about doing the arbitrage lately. If you can afford to sell your used car, now's the time to do it. If you've got an extra car, this is a great time to sell one of your cars and uh, you know capture that price gain. But this is what's going on in the markets. And all this is because we've had this kind of combination of effects. We had people getting a lot of extra money from the government, wanting to do something with it. No, they weren't saving it. They went all out and spent it. Um, at the same time, you had this inventory shortage occur because of the shutdowns of the supply chains. 
So we've had this combination of effects that's caused a short-term spike in prices, got a lot of inflationary pressures in the economy here short-term because of these shutdowns, because of these shortages, and that's causing some anomalies to happen um, within different areas of the market as well as the economy overall. So just kind of an interesting note about kind of how things continue to play out here currently as we kind of move through this progress. Now, this is all going to start to reverse here soon. In the next couple of quarters, we're going to start to see some weakness coming back into the, to the markets and economy as these trends start to reverse. As supply comes back online, as demand begins to drop, we're going to have this collision of increasing supply and falling demand. Prices will start to come down. The prices will always find equilibrium between supply and demand. So these things, these pressures in the economy are going to start to reverse here over the next quarter or so. And that's going to have some implication for earnings for stocks as well as we get later this year. Estimates right now for earnings are way, way, way too high. Those are going to have to come down here as we get to the next few quarters. But uh, last week, as we talked about in the newsletter this past weekend, markets did eke out a new high finally uh, last week after kind of flopping around here for a couple of weeks. We've really kind of gone nowhere. Yes, the markets did hit a new high last week, but again, just barely. Um, you know, it wasn't really a convincing move. Money flows continue to remain very weak. Now, the one good piece of news here, I guess, if you want to call it that, is that we're very close to triggering a buy signal now. We had this sell signal. The markets had this sell off. The markets now rallied back here, set a new high. That's good. That's very positive. About to trigger a little buy signal here. Here's the problem with this buy signal. First of all, it's it's triggering about halfway through the correction. That's not uncommon. It happens. But these signals really don't tend to last long when they do that. Um, so you basically get maybe one or two weeks of advance in the markets. Now that would actually time out with what would go on in the first two weeks of July. When we look at the summer months in general, uh, across the board. July tends to be fairly positive in terms of historical returns. Those returns come in the first two weeks of the month. That would line out with this little buy signal here. Um, here we are about to wrap up the, the, the month of June this week. So we're going to move into July this week. So this buy signal would actually kind of correspond with about a two week rally in July. The last half of July tends to be much weaker. August, September tend to be periods where you get more of a correctionary period in the markets. That would all kind of correspond with kind of what's going on. And again, this rally here has been on very light volume, very, and, and you know, so money flow is really not convincing about what's happening in the overall market. But that's just kind of where we are. Now, we are starting to move into quarter two earnings as we get into July as well. Again, estimates and outlooks for earnings very high here, especially for this quarter. So again, lots of optimism about what companies are going to be reporting in terms of earnings. But even though we had just gone through quarterly earnings here reports just, you know, just recently, markets didn't really respond all that great to it. In other words, we didn't get huge moves. There was a few stocks that had some outsized gains. But overall, um, most companies kind of announcing, you know, good earnings really didn't move that much because prices have have really already built in you know, most of the good news in terms of earnings. So as we move into this next quarter of earnings, we're going to see a couple of interesting things. First of all, sales, top line revenue for, for, for companies in the S&P 500 going into quarter two have already been knocked down about $3. In other words, revenues in the second quarter are about $3 less per share than they were in the, in the first quarter. Hold on a second. Sales are down, but earnings are up, right? 
that's that's what's been going on here. So again, kind of expect some weakness in some of the earnings. Outlooks are going to be key, though. As we get into the really the second quarter earnings report, the outlook for the rest of this year by companies is really going to be critical. What do they see in terms of the supply chains? What do they see in um, expectation of, of more of increased sales and demand from customers? This is going to be interesting considering that in June, July, August, September, we're about to run out of those extended unemployment benefits. Stimulus checks have now really kind of gone through the system. Most of those have been distributed and spent. So demand, in other words, what people, what these companies are expecting to get in terms of sales, their outlook for sales for the rest of this year are going to be interesting when we start talking about this fiscal cliff. So those are things really kind of be looking for here over the next week or so. We come back from the break. We'll talk a little bit this morning about ESG investing, right? This is this environmental, social, globally responsible investing. Is it really a good thing or is it the latest Wall Street heist? We'll talk about that when we come back from the break. Don't go away. listening to The Real Investment Show. You could be one of the 7 in 10 people requiring long-term care in your lifetime. Are you prepared for nursing home care costs averaging more than $7,600 a month? Our next virtual lunch and learn will cover the management of long-term care expenses that could make or break your retirement. Join Richard Rosso and Danny Ratliff for the basics of long-term care. Long-term care. Register at realinvestmentadvice.com for our virtual lunch and learn on long-term care. July 8th at noon, realinvestmentadvice.com. You're listening to The Real Investment Show. And welcome to the show this morning. It is uh, wrapping up the month of June. Here we are already. And uh, actually, it's going to be a lot cooler here over the next uh, couple of days. Right? Yeah. It's going to be in the 80s, mm-hmm. which is kind of seasonally cool here in Texas. It for, is. You know, in Houston, Austin, you know, 80 degrees is kind of kind of cool um, for this time of year, for June, right? Yeah. Um, and in Texas, 99.6% of households have air conditioning in Texas. Makes sense, right? I mean, it's, it's just hotter blazes in Texas. So Seattle... Forty-four percent of homes have AC. Really? And it was 108 degrees in Seattle over oh, the weekend. Man. Yeah. Actually, they had uh, hit. I think they even hit temperatures higher than that. But there's this kind of heat dome that's moving across the country right now. Mm-hmm. So Seattle, it was so hot. How hot was it, Lance? It was so hot, and Tifa couldn't go out and riot. So <laughs> I mean, it was that hot, and it was like this is too hot to go out and riot. I mean, it's just done. So no, I'm just teasing. But that's how hot it is, right? So there's a, there's this kind of this really kind of weird mix going on in the, in the country right now. You've got really hot Seattle, really hot Northeast. There's a heat dome over the Northeast. <laughs> And then here we are, 80 degrees with all the AC. So, <laughs> hey, we're cool. <laughs> we're cool. <laughs> uh, speaking of cool and being environmentally responsible, um, ESG investing. Uh, I've got a new article out on our website this morning called uh, ESG Investing, the Great Wall Street Money Heist. 
And this has been kind of the new thing, right? You need to be socially responsible with your investing, right? So ESG is environmental, social, and governance. Now, these are things that are not on the balance sheet, right? These are how does the company, you know, run its plan? How do they, are they environmentally responsible? Are they socially responsible? Do they do these type of things? And so how do you measure these things is really kind of a grab bag of ideas um, in terms of great talking points. Oh, yes, we've evaluated Apple and we found them to be ESG compliant. Okay, do they actually report their books according to GAP standards? That would be governance, right? <laughs> The answer would be no. Um, you know, environmental, social, how do you judge that, right? How do you judge their footprint? But this is the, this is the new thing, right? So there was a demand by individuals wanting to invest in environmentally, socially, government, you know, government-responsible companies. And so Wall Street said, there's a demand for that? Okay, we'll make you a product. And so they did. ESG is one of the forefronts of BlackRock now. Um, Larry, you know, Larry Fink, the guy that uh, runs around BlackRock all the time, talking about ESG every chance he gets. And why would he do that? Because it makes money. And it makes a lot of money selling you products labeled ESG. Um, you know, we've, we've uh, a good friend of ours on the show, Keith Klein, um, health, nutrition, fitness guru. We've had him on the show a few times talking about how to eat right, right? Make better bad choices. And just because you get something, and he has a whole speech on this, truth in labeling, right? Just because something says it's fat-free does not mean it's fat-free. Just because something says it's healthy for you like healthy choice, doesn't necessarily mean it's healthy for you. Because it's all about labeling requirements and how do you meet those labeling requirements. And those things aren't always clear. So you've got to really understand what you're getting into. You've got to do your own homework when it comes to eating to make sure you're actually eating healthy. Because you may think you're eating healthy, but you may be eating something that is really very bad for you. Like Beyond Meat. Not healthy for you. Same thing goes for this ESG investing. Let me show you something here real quick. Um, there, there's, there's no universal set of rules for ESG risk. Um, EcoBusiness really just wrote a story on this recently. It said, for example, deforestation is a major driver of climate change. No doubt about it, right? You're going to cut down all the trees in the world. You're going to have climate change. You would think it's being used as a filter to ensure companies and ESG-labeled funds are not turning a blind eye to deforestation, but you would be wrong. Carbon Tracker and Industry Think Tank found that 78% of mutual fund providers offered ESG investments. However, none specifically excluded deforestation risks, not a single one actively priced in climate risk. Let me show you an example. Here's two funds, and I'm going to tell you which these what these two funds are. One is ESG. The other is an S&P index. These are the top 10 holdings of an ESG fund and the S&P 500. 
top 10 holdings of one Apple, uh, American Express, BlackRock, Facebook, Alphabet, uh, Google, Home Depot, 3M, Microsoft Corp, NVIDIA, and Tesla. The other, Apple, Amazon, Berkshire Hathaway, Facebook, Google, Johnson Johnson, J.P. Morgan, Microsoft, NVIDIA, Tesla. Surprisingly, top 10 stocks, very close to being the same thing. So which one's which? How do we know which one we're investing in that's ESG compliant and, and the one that isn't? Right? This is the problem that you don't know, but you're trying to figure out because you want to be socially responsible. So what exactly are we paying for here? And it's really kind of more of a scam than a benefit. Uh, BNP Paribas, the largest bank in the Eurozone, never wastes an opportunity to boost their green credentials. As an example, it's also the world's top banker of offshore oil and gas over the last five years and managed to increase fossil fuel lending since the Paris Agreement. That's the same BNP that says, why are we doing sustainable investing? Quite simply, it's worth it. They peddle ESG products. But why is it worth it? Because, well, they charge more for it. Now, I just showed you two funds. And it's interesting because when you look at these two funds in particular, who's it really good for? Is it good for the issuer or is it good for you, the investors who's buying it? EcoBusiness said, investment managers and banks are taking advantage of our collective willingness to help fight climate change because ESG space is, to put it mildly, a zoo. Epic greenwashing is everywhere. Out of 253 funds that switched to an ESG focus in 2020, 87% of them rebranded their funds by calling them ESG. Not one of them changed their holdings. And here's the other part of this. So I'm now I'm going to show you what these two funds were and the expense ratios associated with them. Remember, just a second ago, I showed you these two funds, and I said one of them's an ESG fund, one of them's the S&P 500 index, and I showed you the holdings. Well, here are the two funds. The one that held BlackRock as the third largest holding was the BlackRock iShares USA ESG Select Fund. Apple, American Express, BlackRock. Now, isn't that interesting? BlackRock, who's selling an ESG fund, has their company in the top three holdings. So every time that you buy the ESG ETF select fund, you are also buying their stock, causing their stock price to do what? Go up. They're also happy to charge you 25 basis points for their ESG fund, which has exactly for the most part, the same top 10 holdings as buying the S&P 500 index fund that you pay 0.09% for. So roughly you're paying three times the amount to own the name ESG, but the holdings are virtually the same. And you say, well, Lance, you know, the, the, the performance, right? Really, this doesn't come down to holdings. This comes down to performance. Okay, you know what? I'll bite. It's all about performance, right? So if you take a look at this uh, scattergram chart, which has an R squared of 97%, this is the 10-day return correlation between the 0.09% fee to own the S&P 500 index fund versus the 0.25% fee to own the BlackRock ESG fund. The returns are virtually identical. So you're paying a whole lot more to own a fund that does exactly the same thing as owning the S&P 500 and actually has the same holdings. (laughs) 
So again, this, so this is my point, though, about all of this, is that you've got to be careful with Wall Street. Wall Street's a business, just like any other business on the planet. And when you start demanding something, Wall Street's going to provide it to you. I want to buy ESG funds. Okay, here you go. We'll just take all of our old funds, which really haven't been getting a lot of money flows lately, which is where we charge a fee and make money. We'll jack up the fee there. We'll slap ESG on it. We won't change our holdings at all, but you'll buy it, and that makes us more money. You know, this is part of the problem with this whole idea that capitalism is broken. No, capitalism's working very well. You just don't like the outcome because everything you're doing because you think you're doing this thing for your own benefit is actually benefiting those people that are selling you the product. And so we get all upset that Wall Street's making billions of dollars and we're not. And all they're doing is repackaging stuff and just selling it to you because, you know, honestly, in a lot of cases, you're too naive to know the difference. Because we don't do our homework, right? We just jump on the bandwagon. Everybody says, oh, we should all be socially responsible. So let's go out and buy ESG funds. What are you buying? Why are you buying it? How does it fit into your portfolio? How does this matter to you? And is it really creating any type of real social benefit? If companies aren't really changing their footprint, aren't really changing their, their program, so to speak, and they're just running around calling themselves greener, I mean, what have you actually accomplished? Yeah, you got to be careful what you pay for. You got to be careful what, just because Wall Street tells you something or just because the media tells you something, you've got to be careful about what you're actually paying for because in a lot of cases, you're paying way too much for the same thing you could have bought a whole lot cheaper and probably got better performance out of it. Be right back after the break. Listening to the Real Investment Show. You could be one of the seven in ten people requiring long-term care in your lifetime. Are you prepared for nursing home care costs averaging more than seventy-six hundred dollars a month? Our next virtual lunch and learn will cover the management of long-term care expenses that could make or break your retirement. Join Richard Rosso and Danny Ratliff for the basics of long-term care. Long-term care. Register at realinvestmentadvice.com for our virtual lunch and learn on long-term care. July. 8th at noon, realinvestmentadvice.com. You're listening to The Real Investment Show. So this morning, so just wrapping up our conversation on ESG a second ago, and, uh, and, and again, look, there's nothing wrong with this, right? Uh, my whole point is, is that Wall Street is a business and they're willing to sell you a product. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're getting what you're paying for. You got to do your homework. You know, there's no rules or guidelines for being environmental, being socially conscious, being, you know, being gov- you know, having proper governance, right? How you run your business. 
you know, uh, there's some pretty easy guidelines that you could establish, though, right? Do, do you follow gap accounting rules or not? Right? Do you actually contribute to society or not? And are you environmentally friendly? Right? Are you doing things to be more environmentally friendly? And there's really no guidelines. For, I mean, how do you, you know, in, in a lot of these cases where you're talking about companies operating, you know, Apple is a technology company, as an example. Are they really environmentally friendly? You have to really get in to see how their operations are operating in China, where there's really kind of no rules for being environmentally friendly, right? Where they're manufacturing stuff, where they're producing these products, are they being environmentally friendly? And, and the, that's the homework you've got to do. That's and that's the whole point. But here, but the, the 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 bottom line of this though is this is capitalism. Just because they're selling you a product that may or may not be what it's represented to be, that's the game, right? That's that's the whole thing about Wall Street. That's their job. You want more product, they're going to bring to you SPACs. Electric cars, whatever it is, you want to buy more of it, they're going to bring you a product. Doesn't mean you're going to buy a good product, but they're going to bring it to you. And this is what happens at the peak of bull markets. I had a chart in this weekend's newsletter. If you go to our website, uh, click on our newsletter link, there's a chart of the, the number of money-losing companies being brought public. It's the most since 1999. Now, you would think that a company going public would be a profitable, growing company. No, 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 no. There's a demand right now. You want to buy these companies. You want these new up-and-coming names. You want companies that are you know kind of on the cutting edge of the new technology. It doesn't matter if they're making money. We're going to make them public and let you buy into them, and then the problem's yours. When a company comes public and they sell their shares at $30, whatever the market is, when they come to market, it's not where the stock opens up that day. They, their public offering price is set the day they come to market. So ABC Company, their price is set at $30 a share. The trade goes off. The first trade hits the deck at $70 a share because there's so much demand for it. The company doesn't get $70 a share. They get 30 That's what they went public at. That's what they get. Doesn't matter what happens after that in the secondary market. That's between you and the other buyer-seller. That's capitalism, though. Our article out on Friday, as I told you last week, was part one of our two-part piece on capitalism versus corporatism. A lot of people railing capitalism sucks, right? Capitalism, corporations are profitable and they don't pay their fair share. It's not what capitalism is. Let's define what capitalism is. Capitalism provides a level playing field for entrepreneurs to offer goods and services that produces income and profits. Equitably distributing profits is not capitalism's role. Ensuring that all participants get treated fairly and to some extent uh, regulating personnel and corporate endeavors in the, in, is the role of society in general and government in particular. So when you say something like, well, capitalists, Capitalism sucks and capitalists are terrible at sharing their profits. That's not what capitalism is designed to do. Never has been. 
an economic system where profits, goods, and services are shared equally is not capitalism, that's socialism. The different structure. But when we talk about capitalism, what Wall Street is doing as an example with ESG investing is capitalism. They're taking advantage of demand and they're making a lot of money from it because you're willing to pay three times as much to own a fund that says ESG versus just buying an index, which has exactly the same holdings and performance for a third of the cost. So certainly Wall Street's going to promote ESG investing and in that you need to be green because they're making three times as much money for it. And in an environment where fee compression, you know, everybody's pushing down the cost, free trading, we need lower costs and lower fees. In a market where prices are being constantly pushed down, I got to figure out a better way to get a higher, to extract a higher cost from you and you'd be willing to pay it. ESG is working right now, for now. Eventually you'll catch on, you'll demand lower fees for ESG too. And then it'll be something else. But this is the differential between capitalism and corporatism. And this is what we start to delve into in part one of this article is that we've shifted this idea of capitalism, which works and continues to work, at creating wealth for individuals and have shifted that meaning into corporatism, which is where these publicly traded corporations are taking advantage of the system through share buybacks and a variety of other endeavors that have made the executives inside these companies exceedingly wealthy, the top 1%. And that's who we're mad at. Because, you know, when we talk about capitalism, we're not talking about your next door neighbor who owns the, the you know, the CrossFit gym down the street and makes a, makes a decent living running his business. And we're not talking about your other neighbor who owns the, the salon at the other end of the street and she works hard every day and, and, and does a great job and runs a business and makes money from it so, and supports their families, Right. We're not, that's capitalism, but we don't talk about those guys because they're just small businesses, right? We don't care about the small businesses. That's not, that's not the capitalism that sucks. It's just the other capitalism, right? But that's what capitalism is, and we're not talking about that. And we're not separating out the differential between what capitalism is and still is versus what is broken in the system, which is this corporatism. And the corporatism, we're sponsoring it. You know, we all want to point at the major corporations and say, oh, they're bad. They're not sharing. They're not being, that's not their job to share. But we also don't have to go out and chase their stock prices higher and keep pushing their prices up every time they announce an earnings report that <laughs> they haven't grown revenue in five years. But hey, let's run their price up another 30% because we're all making money in the market, right? You can't, you can't be a contributor to the problem and then complain about the problem. It's 
kind of like being the fireman that sets the house on fire, then shows up to put it out. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. But that's what we're doing. We complain about this. And we're and now we've got all these people railing in the streets because, you know, corporatism is is terrible. Well, they call it capitalism is terrible. And we need to tear the whole thing down and we rebuild with socialistic norms. You're not going to like the outcome. And what I find exceedingly humorous about all this is that while we're all talking about tearing down capitalism and turning into socialism, we're all using the products that capitalism makes. You know, we all, we're all sitting here complaining about capitalism on Facebook and Twitter and TikTok and social media and making those companies billions of dollars in the process by looking at all the ads that come along as we're complaining about all the problems of, of capitalism and corporatism on social media. Oh, and by the way, we're also doing that on our Apple iPhones and our Google Android phones, making those companies billions of dollars using the technology to use the Facebook, the Twitter, and <laughs> everything else to complain about making those companies billions of dollars. Do you see the problem here? You say you don't like capitalism and corporatism, but you're not willing to give up what it provides you. If you want to fix capitalism and corporatism, we can get rid of Facebook, Google, Apple. We can get rid of them real quick. All we got to do is just stop buying the product. They'll be out of business in no time. But see, you don't want to do that. So you can't be the guy that sets the fire, then show up as the fireman and say, oh, don't worry, I'll put it out. You can't do that. Are there problems with capitalism as it exists today? Of course. Is capitalism broken? No. And the reason you know capitalism isn't broken is because every day, all you have to do is turn on the media and see what's going on in the stock market. It's capitalism at work. Companies are selling product, making earnings, creating jobs. That's capitalism. And people are participating in it. Those that aren't are the ones that are complaining about it. What's stopping you from participating in capitalism? Absolutely nothing. You can go out today, form an LLC for about 100 bucks, and start a business doing whatever you want to do. And there's nobody that's going to stop you. That's capitalism. You can participate in the capitalist system if you choose to, but you got to be willing to take the risk. you got to be willing to put in the time, and you've got to put in the work. And you're going to starve a whole lot in the process, but you'll build wealth eventually. You just got to be willing to do it. Be right back after the break. Don't go away. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. You could be one of the 7 in 10 people requiring long-term care in your lifetime. Are you prepared for nursing home care costs averaging more than $7,600 a month? Our next virtual lunch and learn will cover the management of long-term care expenses that could make or break your retirement. Join Richard Rosso and Danny Ratliff for the basics of long-term care. Long-term care. Register at realinvestment.com investmentadvice.com for our virtual lunch and learn on long-term care july 8th at noon realinvestmentadvice.com you're listening to the real investment show 
Mr. Baxter Show. Kind of wrap things up here. Uh, so the it looks like a infrastructure deal is going to get passed. Pretty small. Uh, less than a trillion dollars. <laughs> I say pretty small. It's the largest infrastructure package in history. But when you start talking, you know, we're talking about five trillion here and four trillion there and seven trillion over there, whatever the numbers are. You know, when you pass something less than a trillion, it's almost like, yay, you save some money, right? <laughs> it's, it's still $527 billion in new spending. Now it's spread over eight years. So the economic impact's gonna be relatively small. But I have a question about infrastructure, right? Is this. So first of all, let's back up. The government as it stands really only has two responsibilities. Just two. They've taken on a lot more because we've let them because we've, you know, kind of absolved our responsibility to the government. So it'll just take care of me, right? But they really have two responsibilities according to the Constitution, which is infrastructure, making sure the company oper- the country operates, and national security, make sure it's defense. Outside of that, everything else really belongs to the state. Education, energy, all the stuff that we've, you know, given back to the government, said, oh, I'm too busy. Will you take care of it for me? Um, that really stuff belongs to the state. Roads, bridges, those type of things, that's the government. Airports I have a little problem with. So in this bill, we've got several billion dollars allocated to rebuild airports. But every time I go to Intercontinental Airport, that's always under construction. So I'm not sure exactly what we need to fix at IH, but it's always under construction. Uh, Flew out to Salt Lake City um, last year to go skiing. Brand new airport. So I'm not sure exactly what we're rebuilding in terms of airports. Maybe there's kind of small airports here and there that need some upkeep. Why don't we privatize airports? Let's put some capitalism at work and and privatize airports, sell them off. Let those be the job of private industry. Probably do a better job with it anyway. In fact, you could privatize a lot of stuff. And private capitalism tends to work better than government anyway. But nonetheless, different argument, different day. Um, but this is going to be one of the, the kind of interesting points because at first Biden said, well, I'll, I'm only going to pass the infrastructure bill if it's accompanied by the American Families Plan, which is all the other spending, child tax credits and all the other social stuff, green energy, all that. I'm not going to pass the infrastructure bill if, you, if it's not accompanied by that $2 trillion plan for the American Families Plan. That was his first salvo. And then over the weekend, he backed off of that rather quickly when Republicans and Democrats both started to kind of throw up on that idea. He says, oh, no, 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 we'll sign the infrastructure bill. Then we'll work on the American Families Plan. Okay, so probably going to get this thing passed here fairly shortly. We'll see. And that will be probably the majority of what he's able to do at this point. I don't know if we're going to see more spending until we get into potentially September, October, when we start negotiating the new budget. Now, as we talked about before, there's only one way that they can get a bill passed at this point in government, and that's going to be through reconciliation, which has to be part of the budget process. And importantly, the items in the reconciliation have to be 
part of the actual budget. It can't be stuff that is not normally budgetary items. So this is going to be one of the, the interesting things, because under reconciliation, they can simply pass it by majority vote. So all they need is all 50 Democrats, including Joe Manchin, plus Kamala Harris. And at that point, they can pass a, a big spending package. They could pass the American Families Plan, provided they can get it all under as part of the budget and get it passed with all 51 votes. So that's probably the next time that we're going to see any type of major bill put up at this point will be sometime September, October. Question is, is, of course, we're seeing all this stimulus now starting to come out of the system. By September, we're going to have the majority of the unemployment benefits will have rolled off. The stimulus checks will have worked their way through the system. Personal income declined by 2% last week. And that's because we're, there's less and less stimulus in the system. So as there's less and less stimulus in the system, personal incomes are going to come down because incomes are going to move back to their normal wage inflation-adjusted trends, which we're well above that right now. So good bit of correction coming in personal incomes and also weigh on personal spending, obviously. So that's kind of, of where we are at this point. So we'll see what happens here. But again, you know, $900 billion-ish spread over eight years is not that big of an impact. Economically speaking, when you're talking about a $20 trillion economy-ish. And the other side of this is also that infrastructure is not that easy. It's not something, and, and Barack Obama found this out. If you remember back in 2008, we passed an infrastructure package, $800 billion. Everybody was like, woohoo, awesome. So we're going to go fix the, the, the airports, the roads, the bridges, the trains, and all that back with the $800 billion that we passed back in 2008. <laughs> As Barack Obama found out, shovel-ready jobs really aren't all that shovel-ready. Lots of red tape, lots of legislation, lots of you know uh, problems just trying to get these projects lined up and done. And then that doesn't even mention all the, the graft and all the other stuff that goes along with these government projects and, and where they become a boondoggle like high-speed rail in California. High-speed rail to nowhere, $6 billion later. So these are the challenges, which means that, you know, we very well, may very well spend $800, 900000000000 billion over the course of the next eight years, but it's going to have very limited impact in terms of creating actual jobs or growth in the economy. I'm not saying that infrastructure is a bad thing. Don't get me wrong. I mean, there's things that we need to certainly make sure. Again, the government's job is... A, infrastructure, B, national defense. So they are doing their job, and I'm not saying they're not doing their job. It's just not as big of an impact to the economy as a lot of the people in the market are currently saying. Sounds like a lot of money, but spread out over eight years, it's not really all that much. The problem, of course, is the debt. So we keep having more and more debt, which is slowing economic growth. So, yes, you're doing this economically stimulative package of infrastructure spending, but you're kind of spitting against a raging bonfire of debt that's eating up everything that you throw at it. So, again, the problem is going to be ultimately that we have slower economic growth in the future because of all the debt. But this is just kind of the, the, the issues that we continue to kind of wrestle with you know, economically speaking, as well as as what's happening with the stock market itself. And again, nothing wrong with the market at this point. It's simply responding to what investors are doing. 
And this is the one, this is, and this is one of the important kind of lessons that we all have to learn. And look, I have to learn this lesson repeatedly over time is that just because the market is doing something that doesn't make logical sense doesn't mean it's wrong. And so we have to understand that what the market's doing is doing because of the demand being driven by the players in the market. You're wanting to buy stocks. You're buying stocks. You're doing it on leverage. Uh, I've got an article coming out in the next week or so talking about the fact that young millennials and Gen Xers, the next two groups coming up in the market, they're taking out personal loans. They're going to get credit card debt, et cetera, to invest in the stock market. And there's a huge problem with that, ultimately. But that's the stage of the cycle we're in. And that's why, though, stocks keep going up, despite valuations, despite conditions, despite all the arguments that you can make against it, they're going up. And so markets are performing exactly as they should be doing. And then, of course, we rationalize the advance to tell ourselves that, hey, it's okay that the market's going up. So we tell ourselves that, hey, Buying stuff at 40 times earnings is completely okay because of low interest rates or because of low inflation or whatever your argument is that you want to do. Paying 40 times earnings, really no, no big deal. But that's because we don't really understand the concept of what paying 40 times earnings are because it's become a norm in a stimulus-driven market. 40 times earnings means that if the company distributes all of my pro rata share of their earnings before they pay taxes – Interest on their debt, pay their employees, anything else uh, out of the <laughs> out of every dollar of earnings they bring in, they distribute my pro rata share. It only take me forty years to get my money back. That's what forty times earnings means. And we justify that by saying it's okay because interest rates are low. I don't really have any other place to put my money, so I'm going to buy the most risky asset on the planet because I have no other choice. It's playing Russian roulette. The only question is, is how many bullets you have in the gun? One or six, right? Because it's all about timing in the markets. Where are you within that cycle? And again, right now, we're in a very bullish phase of the cycle. Um, you know, there's a, a, tomorrow's article, technically speaking, is talking about this psychological cycle of where we are in terms of enthusiasm. What are the things that you see when you have enthusiasm in the market, which is typically kind of the last stage of a market cycle? You have record issuances of IPOs. You have speculative excess, rising margin debt, people taking out credit to invest in the stock market. Those, those, all those signs are readily prevalent in the markets. But we'll see what happens, right? It's fine. And again, as I said this morning at the open of the show, first two weeks of July tend to be positive. Markets broke out to new highs on Friday, very close to triggering a buy signal now. So no, no time to be defensive at the moment. But that doesn't mean that's not going to change in the next week or two. Keep you up to date, though. That's why you watch the show every day. We'll be back here in just a little bit. Latest part one of the capitalism versus corporatism is on the markets now. And today's article on ESG investing all on the website, realinvestmentadvice.com, along with our latest newsletter. All there for you on the website right now, realinvestmentadvice.com. Stick around. We'll have three minutes on markets and money out here in just a little bit. See you then. Sign up for the Real Investment Report now at realinvestmentadvice.com. It's a rich man's world.